If you heard last week's episode, then you know something of the story of the Iraqi photographer Kamran Najam, who went missing on a battlefield and the efforts to find him. This is part two of that story. So if you didn't yet hear part one, we would highly recommend you go back and listen to that first episode to get the full experience. And it is an experience. But if you only listen to this episode, don't worry, we will catch you up along the way. And just a quick warning before we get started, there is the sound of gunfire and some cursing in this episode. When Kamran went missing, one of the people most desperate to find him was a 27-year-old woman from Holland. So my name is Jantina van Herwijnen. Jantina had met Kamran in 2009, and the first thing she'd noticed about him was his laugh. Yes, (laughs) happy times. It was a laugh that made you feel safe, which (laughs) she knows sounds weird, but that's just how it felt. They started talking at a conference, And when she told him that she was making a work trip to Baghdad, he said, oh, maybe I'll be there. And he was. We spent a week together in Baghdad, and he showed me everything there. And whenever something happens in Baghdad, like a bombing, I would be really scared and react to it, even when it was far away. But then he said, like, yeah, but you can't react to everything that's happening around you, because then you can't live. Kamran seemed fearless in so many ways. He'd lived through a lot of wars. He'd become a photojournalist against the wishes of his conservative family. And now he had started an agency in Iraq to train local photographers to tell a deeper, more nuanced story about the country, stories beyond just bombs and battles. He called his agency Metrography, and he invited Yantina to visit his office, which was also his apartment. She met all these interesting friends, journalists and artists and filmmakers. It was such a nice place. Everyone would be there. Like, people could just be free there. They could talk about everything. Women felt safe to come there. It was like really a family feeling. It was an odd sort of family. He had an American co-founder, Sebastian Meyer. He had his little brother, Ahmed, helping out, the one brother who believed in what he was doing. Metrography was this bubble where the usual rules of Iraq did not seem to apply. After dinner, the dishes were often washed by the men, not the women. And no topic of conversation was taboo. Kamran always knew he was doing controversial things, but he would always know how far he could go. Yantina and Kamran started spending a lot of time together, and then she moved in with him. But in public, Kamran would never introduce Yantina as his girlfriend, even when they'd been dating for years. To be accepted as a couple, you need to be married. Kamran told her he did not believe in marriage, not the traditional Iraqi kind. I just said, like, I just see marriages shouting to the world that you love each other. There's this sculpture in a park near their apartment. It's called the Statue of Love. It shows a man and a woman fashioned of steel and cloth, and they're kissing. It's pretty chaste, as art goes, but it was repeatedly vandalized and finally torched by religious hardliners. There was nothing left, to be very honest, like ash. A short time after that, Yantina and Kamran were walking through that park with some friends, and they passed the statue, which was now just a pedestal of black ash. And Kamran gives her this look, and they both climb up on the pedestal, and he puts his arm around her waist. And I said, I remember that I said, okay, let's wait, because there's a family passing by, so let's wait till the family is gone. And then we kissed. Was it a very long kiss? Maybe four seconds. Four seconds. (laughs) It was an intense one. It felt really like, okay, this is like real. That he does that in public does mean a lot. Because you wouldn't take that risk 
if that's not the feeling. A friend snaps a photograph. And then he went back to the office and I went somewhere else. And then he called me like, hey, I want to post this on Facebook. Are you okay with it? I think I said, you are so crazy. I'm not sure if this is a good idea, but you probably know better. <laughs> and then he quoted the words that she'd said to him. So now we shouted to, to the world that we love each other. Cameron later proposed for real, with a ring and everything. But that Facebook photo went viral. And this has made a really big conflict in our family. Ahmed is Cameron's little brother. Even my brothers, they were saying, you have to publish a letter and say, I apologize for what I did. Ahmed had been religious like his family, until Cameron had pulled him into this world of journalism and photography. So when this is published, so many people said, you are from Muslim family, you are not allowed to do this kind of picture. And then Kamran started getting death threats. From conservative people. A prosecutor threatened to sue Kamran for, and this is the actual charge, behaving outside social norms. But Kamran did not seem worried. He gave interviews to local and international press. This was not just a kiss, he told them. This was a protest. And then couples started going to the statue and posting their own kiss photos. I really trusted him in making the right decisions and not going too far. This is exactly what Yantina loved about him. He could step into these dicey situations and walk out unharmed. I felt very safe. He'd get arrested at a demonstration and then send her a photo of him drinking tea with the prison guards. So when ISIS invaded and Kamran went to cover the battle... Yantina did not worry too much. Even when she heard that something bad had happened, she just told herself, Let's not stress out, because this is Kamran and he's fine. I'm Gregory Warner, and this is Rough Translation from NPR, the show that takes you to faraway places with stories that hit close to home. Last week, we learned what happened to Kamran on that battlefield after he was shot and kidnapped by ISIS. We took you through the critical hours and days that followed, and how that kidnapping brought together the two sides of Kamran's life. Two sides that had always clashed. His journalist friends and his religious brothers, who now had to work together to run a rescue mission. They learned how to scan a lead. A doctor who said, I treated this Kurdish journalist who came in, his name was Kamran. How to win the support of a tribal leader. He touched my hand and he, he asked me to sit beside him. But the pressures of a search that stretches into weeks and months are different. Because in the first few days, you don't have time to think about the risks of going full throttle or the cost of holding out hope. As the search continues, the team will start to confront the wider game that they are now a part of, where searching for their friend means people will get hurt. Karen Duffin has been reporting this story with Cameron's friend, Sebastian Meyer. Here's Karen. In almost any hostage negotiation, your goal is to prove to the kidnappers that the person they're holding is not that important. So you don't drive up the price of their release. But when you're negotiating with ISIS, there is another factor. They don't kidnap people like a Somali pirate would because they want to ransom. You know, they kidnap people because they want to make it a public statement, want to kill them. The search team has to prove that Kamaran is not what ISIS would call an infidel, like not someone who would throw raucous parties. Oh, 
or date a Dutch woman. It's very charming. Or drink alcohol or hang out with Westerners. Oh, God. No, 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 no. So it doesn't help that Cameron's best friend and the guy who co-founded the photo agency with him is an American, Sebastian Meyer. Because they're going to be like, oh, shit, this guy's Western. He's an infidel. Like, we should kill him and, and videotape it and put it online. We needed to make him as anonymous and ordinary as possible. They're trying to make Kamran look like somebody he's not. Like, they made a video to send to ISIS TV featuring work that Kamran did that ISIS might appreciate. Like, Kamran photographed an Iraqi journalist who was killed by American soldiers. They put that in the video. And while they're trying to rewrite Kamaran's story, this thing keeps popping up that is making it so much harder. That kiss photo, the one he posted on Facebook of him and Yantina kissing on a pedestal. Shouting to the world that we love each other. If you Google Kamaran's name after the kidnapping, it's the first thing that comes up. And the photo is all over Facebook. Everyone is posting it as a tribute to this charismatic rebel they love. And we were thinking, if this photo goes to ISIS, they will kill Cameron. We were talking with people, please delete this photo. Yantina was getting on the phone and begging people to take it down. Sebastian is threatening news editors. Cameron's blood will be on your hands. One person would take it down, another would post it. And at the same time, Ahmed is getting furious phone calls from his brother Najat saying, can you get your friends to stop posting that kiss photo? And Ahmed also wants this photo taken down. But the difference is Najat wants it to have never existed in the first place. For him, that photo is a symbol of Kamaran's rebellion that his friends had encouraged. Kamaran had the worst friends. He always chose the wrong friends. Najat has a catalog of the friends' betrayals, from the great to the petty. He still talks about this one time before Cameron was kidnapped. His mom made a pot of dolma for Cameron. I took it to Cameron's office. Everyone was there but Cameron. They called Cameron and told him about the dolma, but they ate it before Cameron comes back. And I always told him, the people around you are using you and stabbing you in the back. The nature of fire is when you touch it, it'll burn you. We warned him not to do it. For Najat and his other brothers, Kamaran's kidnapping has become this horrible version of I told you so. They thought that because of Kamaran's friends and because of the metrography, that's why Kamaran disappeared. And then little by little, the tension, the underlying tension that we'd sort of plastered over, that started to crack. What had been one team became two. The family set up their own command center in the family home. They stopped sharing their intel with Sebastian, who was coordinating all their leads on this massive spreadsheet. So now the friends team doesn't know who's called whom. They're missing details. Only one person knows everything. I was in a really, really bad situation. As the team unravels... I wanted to connect them. Ahmed is literally driving between the office and the family home again... To the family. ...and again... Come back to the friends. ...trying to sew the two sides back together. Let's try to be a team. 
a team that needs both friends and family. The family has religious contacts. And as Kamaran's family, they have a lot more sway when the government or tribal leaders ask for help. And the friends, they're journalists. They know how to investigate things. They have a ton of on-the-ground sources. But at this point, there is so little trust that for Ahmed to stay on both teams, he has to lie to both sides. He gets back from meeting with his family and has to say, oh, I was just at the grocery store. Or he meets Sebastian in places that he knows his family won't see him. Everyone was trying to hide stuff from each other. The brothers have started spreading rumors. False information. Hinting that there are double agents on the friends team. All this spy shit. And now Sebastian starts withholding things from Ahmed. That made me second guess myself, made me start second guessing Ahmed and just like without even knowing how and when, we were almost at war with each other. One night, about six weeks into the search, Sebastian arrives at metrography and he can't get in. There's a bike lock on the gates. Kamaran's brothers, Najat and Adi, have locked up the agency. And they said, if you try to break that lock, we'll call the cops and say that you are trespassing on private property. No one can get into the office, the command center that they are using to coordinate this search. And something about this escalation, the absurdity of this bike lock, pulls things into focus for Ahmed. Like, what are we doing? The only thing that matters right now is that we find Kamaran. This is ridiculous. Enough. So he sits down with Sebastian. I never uh, told says, about this, but... I haven't been telling I you everything. And Sebastian says, yeah, danger. I haven't either. All I'm going to ask is that you don't lie again. They share all of their intel now, and they pledge that from now on, they will be honest with each other. Sing me a beautiful song. A beautiful Kurdish song. That night, Ahmed goes to the other team, to the family home. They've asked him to come. Najat called me, said, Ahmed, come home. We are going to have a family meeting. And he's thinking, I fixed one side. Maybe now I can fix the other. Ahmed drives to the family home, and it's the night before Eid starts, which is the biggest Muslim holiday of the year. It's a day for families to be together. He walks slowly up the concrete steps. He's preparing his speech, like, let's put aside our differences and just focus on the thing that we all want. And when I went in, my father was sitting and two of my sisters. His mom isn't there, just his dad, two sisters, and his two religious brothers. Najat and Adi, they were all angry face. Ahmed sits down, but before he can say anything, Adi, the bodybuilder brother, starts in on him. He says, metrography is going to stay closed. Also, you are not allowed to work with that friend's team. You have to respect our family and you have to be in this group. They're telling Ahmed, you have to pick a side. And Ahmed wants to say, this isn't about sides, family or friends. This is about the best way to bring Kamaran back, which is everyone working together. And metrography? That was Kamaran's life. Ahmed takes a breath, turns to the brothers, and he says, For closing metrography, I'm not letting you to do that because Kamaran sacrificed himself And I wanted to finish it, sacrifice himself for metrography. Ahmed doesn't get to finish his sentence. My older brother, Adi, 
came and he kicked my head twice and he was just pushing me like crazy. His sisters jump in to try to separate the fight, but Adi goes to the kitchen and tries to grab a knife. His sister has wisely locked the kitchen in advance. And at this point, the whole family is shouting, except for one person. The strange thing was my father was not moving. He was just staring at me. His father says nothing. The one person in this room who had the authority to just say the word and stop this beating. I don't think that he was enjoying, but he was thinking that, yeah, this is a time that I have to be beaten by the older brother. Ahmed scrambles to get out of there, and he makes it out the front door, back to the top of the stairs, when Adi gets in one last kick. He pushed me down all the stairs, and when I... Uh, arrived in the last stair. I was bleeding and everyone thought that I'm dead. Upstairs, he can hear Najat yelling at Adi, you killed him. I was just trying to put my hands in my pocket. Just Ahmed is trying to get to the, his car, but he can't car. walk. So he crawls to his car and when he gets there, it won't start. It was like a scary movie. I was just checking the window if my all the brothers coming again, and my sister were crying. It was a really, it was so bad. Ahmed's family wanted the same thing from him that they had demanded but never got from Kamaran. The only version of Ahmed that would satisfy his family was that young, obedient Salafi boy working at the driving school with his older brother, Najat. But that was the life Kamran had pulled him out of. He was not going back. This is my duty now. I have to finish what Kamran started. When Rough Translation returns, Ahmed steps defiantly into Kamran's shoes. And an encounter with ISIS does not at all go as planned. That's after this. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where many people do the same things you do. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. When you're paying for college on your own, there's a lot to balance. To help you get through it all, NPR's Life Kit talked to the real experts, students. Finding a side hustle that works for you and works for your schedule is hugely beneficial. Find Life Kit's new guide on how to pay for college in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit. We're back with Rough Translation from NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. At the same time that Ahmed was diving more fearlessly into the search for his brother and also stepping in to run his photo agency, Sebastian was yanked out of all this. He was called back suddenly to New York, and Ahmed and the headquarters of the search were now 9,000 miles away. Karen Duffin continues our story. I met Sebastian about a year into the search for Kamaran. He had just moved home to New York to take care of his mother. She had been diagnosed with cancer. He was living with her, taking her to doctor's appointments. Um, When do you think you'll go back, like in the summer or...? I, I don't know. It really depends on my mom's chemo schedule. 
He struck me then as a guy carrying around a lot of anger just beneath the surface. He was really chill, really funny, but then something would set him off and he'd get mad, like madder than the moment deserved. I used to ride the subway hoping that someone would, you know, brush my shoulder or something like that. I was like, if someone bumped me right now, I would vent all my spleen on them. Sebastian was living in New York. So it is Tuesday. But every morning, he would wake up to Kamran. I spent the morning fielding a ton of calls about Kamran. He talked to journalists he still knew in Iraq. You know, what have you heard? What have you heard? Afternoons were for his mom. The day after tomorrow, Thursday, she's going in to see the doctor. Then late into the night, in the darkness of the internet, execution videos. ISIS released videos of people they executed, people they'd beheaded or drowned in cages, and he would watch every video he could, just to make sure this one wasn't Kamaran. And then he would get up and do it all again. It was hard for me to gauge how close or how far Sebastian was from finding Kamaran. Sebastian? Yeah. This is exciting. He would stop me. Well, let me, I'm going to stop you right there because we've had bits of news even better than this. And they've come to nothing. I do not have high hopes. I do not have low hopes. I am so neutral. I watched Sebastian train himself to just stay neutral, even when shocking news came in. You hear stuff like, oh, ISIS is using you to weed out informants. Planting false intel with people they suspected were leaking information. You hear that contacts that have given you information have been executed by ISIS. Wow. Like the doctor who had treated Kamran's bullet wounds and then told them about it. They heard he'd been killed. You'd hear that it was actually being turned back on you and you were a pawn in somebody else's game. Oh my God. In searching for Kamaran, they were helping ISIS. So the level of guilt that you can start to feel potentially is enormous. And you become a little bit hard-hearted. Even if people were getting hurt, they had to keep up their search. You just have to say, if that's true, that's the way it is. Kamran being released is still my only priority. There was only one person in the world who really understood what Sebastian was going through. Ahmed? Hello, Seb. Hello, can you hear me? They were on the phone constantly. Let's talk now. You can tell me everything. Uh, just just one second. Uh-huh. Talking through the latest leads and then checking in with each other. Tell me quickly, how 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 is your mom doing? Ahmed's mom had also been diagnosed with cancer. She's fine. She's sitting beside me. At this point, the search team in Iraq has dwindled. Kamaran's fiance Yantina has moved back to Holland. His brothers have returned to their families and jobs. Most of Kamaran's friends have too. So when Sebastian comes to town, I slept in the office. There's no longer a big team sitting around a whiteboard putting pins on a map. It's just him and Ahmed. Sebastian can see Ahmed has changed. Now he has a Rolodex of sources. He's the one tracking down leads. We'll sit down, I'll get my laptop, we'll go through the whole thing. He's also taken over the reins of Kamaran's photo agency. Well, I mean, thank God you're doing it, because I don't do it anymore, so. <laughs> Someone's doing it. 
On this visit, Ahmed has some big news. Right, tell, tell me what happened in, in, in Kirkuk. It's not Kamaran's address. He's not coming home tomorrow. I'm not coming with the good news. I'm not coming with the bad news. But it is something they can act on. I really want to... Ahmed has met with a new source, an intelligence advisor to the prime minister. And the guy asked to listen to this recording Ahmed has of the phone call Kamaran made with his ISIS captor the day after he disappeared. Kamaran said, let me, let me listen to it. When it got to the part where Kamaran's captor took the phone, he stopped, like, like, freeze. He said, again, again, for eight times. The guy said to Ahmed, I know who this is. This guy, before ISIS, he was a head of the mafia group. It's like a mafia. He has identified Kamaran's captor. Holy I found shit. out that this is a real name. Holy and, shit. Yeah. When Sebastian first met Ahmed, he was Kamaran's little brother. You spoke to Hamid. Someone who would help out at the agency now and then. You recognize the voice. Now Ahmed is telling him he has won the confidence of a high-ranking intelligence official who has given him this really important information that he has double, triple-checked. He played the recording for other people, and they confirmed the name. I was so super happy. It was Kamaran style. Kamaran style. We know exactly who he is. That night, as Sebastian tried to settle in for bed, he just couldn't sleep. Not from excitement about the captor's name. It was something else Ahmed had learned. That same security advisor had told him, I think your brother is probably alive. When ISIS gets a hostage with skills, they put them to work. I think they might be using Kamaran as a photographer. When I got that news, I had a terrible night. Sebastian called me from Iraq to tell me about this. What I've managed to, to do from the very beginning was not to project myself into the possibilities of what Kamaran's going through. Whenever my mind goes to that place, I just shut it down. Mm-hmm. But that was not, I, I, I did the best I could that night, but it was rough. If you're forced to shoot video and photos of horrendous executions, like the thought that Carmen's going through that just really upset me. <clears throat> I'm going to actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to stop talking about this right now because I'm feeling it coming back. So, Okay, no problem. One thing that oddly gave Sebastian solace was his job as a journalist. This was when ISIS was at its peak, taking over swaths of Syria and Iraq. And he wanted to tell the story of the people that took his friend. He felt like he owed that to Kamaran. I wasn't there for a vendetta, but I was going to show the world what monsters they really are. Sebastian went to interview Kurdish soldiers preparing to fight ISIS. He also interviewed people who'd been held captive by them. I interviewed a 15-year-old Yazidi girl who had been taken prisoner and who had managed to escape. Can she, can she tell us, can she tell, like, what, what does it say? And she rolled up her sleeve and she'd tattooed on herself while she was being kept prisoner by ISIS. Mom and Dad, I love you. It was... She made that when she was with Imad. I mean, I don't know. 
Sebastian wanted to talk to the men who had done these things, the men who had taken Kamaran. And Ahmed had prison contacts. All the phones off. So he arranged interviews with some captured ISIS prisoners. And we were told, you know, you're going to have the worst fighters, you're going to have the, the, the nastiest people. In Kurdish, the, they use the word dirty, like pisne, like oh, the pistrin, which means like the dirtiest. We're going to have the dirtiest fighter for you. Sebastian pitched a feature to Channel 4 News in the UK. Sebastian would interview, Ahmed would translate. They drive to the secret location where the fighters are being held. They set up their camera. And they take off this blanket, and there's this like kid sitting in front of me. And he's not just a kid, but he's like really baby-faced. They interview him. He doesn't have much to say. And the next prisoner they bring in is even younger. He sits down and he is shaking. I mean, visibly, visibly shaking. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, shit, shit, this is a kid. Is he being coerced into doing this interview? Has he been tortured? If the original idea of the interview was to get in the head of a murderer, of a psychopath and of a monster, now I was trying to get in the head of a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old boy, and I, I say... I'm going to change, I'm going to change the, the direction of this interview. He's 16. Were there a lot of other people his age working as soldiers for ISIS? I wanted to... I needed to turn the cameras off and go home and think about it is what I needed to do. But they had promised Channel 4 ISIS monsters. So they dig in, and this is when they meet Ali, an ISIS assassin. He started when he was just 13 years old. This is a guy who had beheaded people. So I had found my monster. And that's when it got really complicated. So he describes pushing this uh, Kurdish soldier forward onto his belly and cutting his head off. And then there's a pause, and I ask him, how do you feel? How does he feel? And he goes totally silent. And then he starts to whisper. I can't tell if he's if he's praying. The guy is just pitched forward, handcuffed, head first onto the floor. As he's pitching forward, Ahmed is actually already out of his chair and trying to throw himself under under Ali to break his fall. Um, he just finished telling you that he beheaded I know. people, and here you're like, I, I don't want him to bump his head. Yeah, I know. That's Ahmed, that's not me. No, I don't wish any, any particular harm on Ali, but my instinct was not to, to break his fall. Um, my concern was, can I s- take the camera off the tripod and continue filming him, or not? They assumed the interview was over. They weren't even sure they wanted to continue. But Ali said, no, I want to keep going. So they gave him some water and turned the camera back okay, on. We're, we're recording, so we, we and then he starts denying everything. Then he said, I didn't do it. 
you know, why are you making me say these things? And the guy in charge of the, the, the counterterrorism unit is telling me like, this is all like an act, this is all BS. The prison official is saying, don't believe that guy. He is an assassin. Now, Ali is saying, no, I was faking it the whole time. They made me say this. And I, you know, what, what, who, who, who do you believe in a situation like that? The strangest thing is, if you look at the video of this, right before Ali passes out frothing at the mouth, he turned to the camera. It's quick, but he gives this unmistakable look. Like the way a kid will, you know, stop crying halfway through, make sure that the parents are watching them cry. You got this, right? You're recording? Okay, I'll fall on the floor now. But if he's putting on a performance, who is the performance for? What does it even mean? So you, I just kept going forward with the interview. And then at the end, I said, what would your message be to the families of the Peshmerga that he killed? What would you tell them? He tells them again, he didn't do it. He starts to cry. When Ahmed and I left the interview afterwards, I barely spoke. Totally, totally, totally shocked. And we went and we changed the brake pads on my car as like, just I we couldn't go home. Like we just needed to do something, anything. Sebastian sent the footage of these interviews to Channel 4. They said, we can't run these. Sebastian had gotten what he wanted. He got to sit in a room with ISIS fighters and ask them all his questions. But... No questions are answered. There is no satisfaction. There is no catharsis. Instead, Sebastian is surprised to find himself feeling sorry for the ISIS prisoners. Was there any part of you that felt like this was a betrayal to feel this way about people that were holding him? That is a question that sat with me for quite a while. And... He thought about Cameron and the work he had done, trying to see beyond the black and white way that people portrayed Iraq. And I know 100% that he would have felt and done the exact same thing. After these interviews, I watched Sebastian change. It's like he had been carrying this sword and he could finally put it down. Those interviews have actually allowed me to to suffer less. If I had not met them, rage would have destroyed me. I think I would have been consumed by it. Sebastian started doing things that he couldn't let himself do before. He found a therapist, he asked his girlfriend to marry him, and he did one other thing. When Rough Translation returns, Sebastian sits down to talk with Kamran's brother, Najat, the one who used a bike lock to keep him out of the search. And he learns a very different reason things went so wrong. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Wix.com. Rough Translation connects listeners to untold stories from around the world. 
With Wix, create your own professional website to connect your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story or someone else's exactly the way you want. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash translation to get 10% off. Support also comes from Smile Direct Club. How long does it take to get a lifetime of confidence? You can get a smile you'll love in about six months with Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. They'll email a preview of your new smile. Get $100 off at smiledirectclub.com slash podcast. Offer code ROUGH100. Evangelicals play an important role in today's politics. But how and when did this religious group become so political? This week on Throughline, the history of evangelicals in America. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Except for the first week or so of the search, when the team of friends and family were still united, Kamran's older brother, Najat, had been mostly an impediment to the rescue. At least that's how Sebastian and Ahmed saw it. And Najat is not the one who threw Ahmed down the stairs, but he did throw a bike lock on the gates of Kamran's agency. So determined was he to shut out that side of Kamran's life. Of all the family, Najat always seemed to Sebastian like the most cold and uncaring. When I don't cry, so it doesn't mean I'm not affected by the situation. But I'm a kind of person that I cannot cry. When Najat was a kid, his teachers would beat him harder because he wouldn't give them the satisfaction of public tears. He says even onions don't make him cry. I dream about Cameron more than I dream about anything else. Not long ago, Sebastian and Ahmed went to speak with Najat. This, I'm, I can't tell you how happy I am that after five years, we have the opportunity to sit down and talk about this. They wanted to ask him about that split in the team. How did things get so bad that the family was hiding intel and making the search harder? Can you describe from your perspective, from your side, why that happened? Why we ended up dividing into two groups? We took so many risky steps to talking to so many dangerous people, talking to people from inside of ISIS organization. The problem, Najat says, was Kamaran's friends. Not just that they were eating all of his mom's dolma and drinking whiskey and turning Kamaran into a heathen. They were doing something worse. They were making public what needed to be kept secret. The family would collect sensitive intel, and the friends would post it on Facebook. So we were afraid of Cameron's friends putting us in danger because of the information they would put out there. So whatever we did, it was so confidential. Because ISIS was punishing people who crossed them, and the Kurdish forces were jailing people with ISIS contacts. He says, after my friend and his wife helped us out, they got put in jail. And when we went back to them, they said, we're not going to risk talking to you again. 
Sebastian had always told himself he would continue the search even if people got hurt. Kamran being released is still my only priority. But the people at risk were Najat's neighbors, his friends, his family, in a country Najat still had to live in. I, I can understand because lives were at risk, those guys were like, you know what, let's not tell those other guys about what we're doing because this could get us thrown in jail, could get our friends thrown in jail. So we had many news, many pieces of information about him, but we never shared it with anyone, not with Ahmad, nor with you guys, not with anyone else. Kamaran has not been heard from since June of 2014, exactly five years ago. The last really promising lead they had, the name of Kamaran's captor, went nowhere. They tracked him down, but he was already dead. Kamaran is one of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who've gone missing the result of civil wars, foreign invasions, a brutal dictator, a war with ISIS, hundreds of thousands of Kamarans. <laughs> Najat is the only one on the search team who believes that Kamaran is still alive. There is no way Kamaran is dead. Ahmed and Sebastian have started searching for Kamaran's body. Ahmed has these photographs on his computer, how a shirt looks or how bones look after they've been decomposing for two years, four years, five years. So if he gets the call and needs to identify Kamaran's body... I'm ready for it. Ahmed has thrown himself into building up Kamaran's photo agency. He's taken it from the single bare-bones office Kamaran started in to four offices across Iraq. Welcome, everyone. He recruited 74 new photographers. Today for me is a really important... And, and this year, they brought the World Press Photo Exhibition to Iraq for the first time ever. This is basically the Oscars of photography, and it was something that Kamaran had always dreamed of. special for Iraqis because after 64 years, this is the first time that... Recently, he was running a conference on copyright law, and he saw a familiar figure in the fourth row. I, I saw someone that it looked like my father, but I, I said, no, this is not him. And when I finished my speech, he was the only one that he was standing and he was clapping. I wanted to talk with him, but he left. And after that, he told my mother that he's proud that I can carry on on Cameron's dream. Ahmed still keeps in his wallet the birthday note that Kamran sent him all those years ago when he was a young Salafi Muslim in a driving school. That invitation to a new life. The thing about metrography, it's really, really, really killing me. Sometimes I hate this because this is not real me. Do you wish you could leave? Sorry? Do you wish you could stop running the agency? I was thinking about it. I was talking about this this subject with Sebastian. It's really, really painful, more than f- searching for Cameron. And i tell you why. When there's any opportunity, 
about photography, I have to go and get it. He has committed himself to a passion project that is not his passion. I don't, I don't think that I will leave metrography before finding out about Cameron. Sebastian also feels stuck, and this is going to sound funny, but one day he was trying to make sense of it, so he started just typing every one of his conflicting emotions into Google. He says he can't remember the exact list. And it gave him a phrase, ambiguous loss, forever in between, forever not knowing whether to grieve or to hold out hope. Which means that Sebastian and Ahmed, even though they have told themselves, we are certain Cameron is dead. 100%, I'm sure that Cameron's dead. They can still get a phone call. I got your message. Like a call they got just a few months ago. Uh, there's a good news. And I said, what, what And they that? are right back in the search. And uh, they have some prisoners with them, including some journalists. Oh, God. I, Ahmed, I haven't felt this like, <laughs> I haven't felt this way in like three years. You know, like everything coming back. Um, What do you, what's your feeling about You'll find photographs of Kamran and by Kamran on our Twitter feed. Follow us at Roughly. Today's show was produced and edited by our Rough Translation team. That is me, Jess Jang, and Marianne McCune with Karen Duffin. Also, thanks to Sebastian Meyer for his reporting and editing. Karen Duffin is host of one of my favorite podcasts, Planet Money. Big thanks to Alex Goldmark and the entire Planet Money team for lending her to us for all this time. It's been great working with her. Additional thanks to Jess Benko, Sana Krasikov, Jason Basso, Birwahijani, Dana Asad, Pujar Mohammed, and our interpreter, Hussein Ibrahim. The Rory Peck Trust supports freelance journalists across the globe, and it's been a resource to Cameron's search team over the years. Jantina van Herweinen, Cameron's fiancé, works for another organization that protects journalists in trouble, Free Press Unlimited. Links to both on our site, npr.org slash rough translation. The Rough Translation executive team is Neil Peruth, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Music composed by John Ellis. Eric Dube remixed our theme. Mike Cruz scored the episode, mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. Aaron Register is our project manager. Our intern is Autumn Barnes. I'm Gregory Warner. We are off until after the July 4th holiday, so back in three weeks with more Rough Translation. I forgot how much I missed you. Can I do those? Yeah. One, two... Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old here, older than the.